opportunity to meet freely here and for your presence with us. You are the object of our adoration, and you are the object of our praise and our honor. And we thank you, Lord, for this time together and for the freedom we have to do that. We do pray for our country, for those in leadership, for our president and many others. And, Lord, we know the national conversation is adverse and difficult, and we pray that we as believers would be a positive contribution to that conversation. Thank you for your word this morning, for this passage of Scripture. Thank you that you lead and guide us in the truth, and we pray that you would change us, transform us, uh, and apply your word as you see fit in each individual life. And thank you that you can do that. And we praise you for this day and for this day of life. And, Lord, we thank you for each family and each person represented here. And we pray, Lord, even in the midst of difficulties and adversities in life, that you are always faithful And you know all about these things. And may we just stand steadfast for your grace and your mercy. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome. It is good to see you here this morning again. Thanks, Greg, for sharing your testimony with us. And thank you, Bill and Barbara, for sitting him down at the kitchen table. Uh, Greg has been a blessing in my life and in many of your lives also in the life of this church. So thank you, Greg, for doing that. Uh, If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a story to tell, and uh, we may be approaching you, and you can do it. Our videographer will uh, make sure that you come off uh, really well, so uh, we would love to hear your story also. Also, just uh, from last week on St. Patrick's Day, some of you asked about a copy of St. Patrick's Breastplate or Lorica Prayer, basically, and that's in your bulletin if you would like a copy of that. Uh, So we looked at that last week. Uh, One of my minor hobbies, I seem to have lots of minor hobbies, is uh, collecting epitaphs. You know, epitaph is that pithy short saying on a tombstone, which is trying to capture the essence of the person who is buried there. Now, here I've noticed when I walk through the cemetery, there's not a lot of epitaphs. Uh, Basically, it's the dates and maybe a Bible verse, which is great, too. Uh, but uh, you go further back east, if you go in the Midwest and, some, and down south, too, there's more of a tradition, maybe, of someone, uh, family members who were left behind, or maybe the person wrote it themselves, of an epitaph uh, printed or, or chiseled into this headstone at a cemetery. Uh, one I like is found in Tombstone, Arizona. Lester Moore was a uh, Wells Fargo agent in Tombstone, and his epitaph reads, Here lies Lester Moore. Four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. (laughs) They get a little dark, don't they? But uh, anyway, uh, that's one of my minor hobbies. I have no major hobbies, just minor hobbies. So anyway, Uh, but studies demonstrate uh, when uh, John read the text for us today, you caught that it's about speech, about the tongue. And studies demonstrate that we average 30,000 words per day each one of us. And, you know, when you think about that spread over a lifetime of 60, 70, 80, 90 years, 30,000 words a day, we could fill up volumes in a library, couldn't we? And uh, our communications are being recorded, whether you know it or not, and we'll get to that in a moment. And how would you feel and how would you like to read over the record of all of your communications, everything your mouth, your tongue has said? Well, I'm pretty sure I don't want to revisit every utterance of this mouth. I'm pretty sure of that. And uh, there's all of us, I think, have uh, things we've said we would love to take back. 
and would really like it if nobody ever remembered some of the things we said. And so James is getting right to the point here. Again, James is very practical. Uh, It's oftentimes called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. So if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to James chapter 3, and we're going to look at this first part of chapter 3 of the book of James. James is concerned, as, as Greg said, our walk should match our talk. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and James is writing to those who are believers, he constantly addresses them as brethren, my beloved brethren, which in the plural means male and female. And he's addressing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's concerned they are not walking their talk. And here in this passage, he's concerned that their talk does not match their supposed uh, profession of faith. And so he's going to take us again, uh, to some very personal issues. Every one of us is going to struggle with this passage. In fact, I read one commentator, you may have heard of J. Vernon McGee, uh, a preacher and a radio preacher and a pastor and actually a Hebrew scholar from years past who's now gone to heaven, but his program is still on the radio. In his commentary, he said he looked at all of the passages he had presented in seminars and Bible weeks and studies, and he had never approached the book of James. And he was a little bit advanced in age by that time. And he said, I think it's because it is too personal. It's where the Holy Spirit of God holds me down by the neck and uh, makes me pay attention to what my life looks like. But then you think about 30,000 words spoken a day, and all of us have loose tongues in a sense, and James is going to address that in a minute. Uh, If we could travel back east to Massachusetts, to Hatfield, Massachusetts, we'd go to the cemetery there, And there's an epitaph there that kind of haunts me a little bit. And it reads this, thusly, it says, Beneath this stone lies Arabella Young, who on the 21st of May, 1771, began to hold her tongue. And that's her epitaph. You know, let's hope that those of us who are still living learn the lessons that James has for us and that we do better than Arabella Young did back in the 1700s. Evidently, she never learned how to control her tongue, and that was the pithy statement which captured her essence, her life. How would you like that on your tombstone uh, for all the world to see? We all know people who couldn't stop talking, who were unwise in speech, and when you're around them, you don't have to say much because they really dominate the conversation, don't they? Uh, It was said of one man, he never had a Uh, He never had an unspoken thought. He never had an unspoken thought. I wonder what our friends would say about us. I wonder what my friends would say about me. Do we talk too much? Are we loose with our words? Are we too quick with our opinions? Do we love to put others down? Are we too quick with our sarcasm? Just a few of the questions that can be asked. As James is the wisdom literature of the New Testament, perhaps, we go back to Proverbs on the back of your bulletin insert. I've uh, given you, I think, almost all of the uh, verses in Proverbs that deal with the tongue. And if you have a struggle with your tongue, with your speech, it is good to go through the wisdom literature, Proverbs, and then James, and study what both of those books have to say about our speech, about our words. But Proverbs 10, 19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Remember, Proverbs in the Old Testament is comparing wise living with foolish living. 
And God calls upon us to be people of wisdom, people who live wisely. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. The author Mark Twain paraphrased that this way, better to keep one's mouth shut and be considered a fool rather than opening it and removing all doubt. <laughs> that is a good, good quote by Twain there. And uh, someone, uh, somewhere I ran across the quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who she wrote, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. That's another bit of wise speech there. David, uh, King David wrote in Psalm 139, I said, 139.1, he said, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Guard my mouth as a muzzle. Isn't that a picture? Later on in Psalm 141, he writes, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. David understood very well the mess he could make of things by a wrong word, a spoken thing that would go against what God has him. In Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The Bible's very clear that what comes out of our mouths is a product of our inner life. I think of sarcasm because I've struggled with that in the past personally, and it's been shown that sarcasm in our speech is really just a cover for inner anger. It is a cover for anger. What fills your heart? And how does it come out? Because eventually it will come out. Then Jesus in Matthew 12, 36 says this, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. If that does not sober you, it should. I remember as a child going to church, and my dad read me this verse, probably after I, uh, we used to call it fanging out somebody, after I yelled at my sisters probably. And he said, you know, all of your conversation you will have to give an account for. And that scared me to death, even though I was just a little pagan. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was sobering. And Jesus, those are Jesus' uh, words. And we also read in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. One author said it takes a baby two years to learn how to talk and then 50 years to learn to keep its mouth shut. <laughs> and some people... And, and, you know, never learn that lesson. And so we come to James's concern here. James is concerned about our tongues. If you read carefully through this short letter of James, you notice that it's, he, he, he has a concern for our speech and how we talk. Remember, uh, this passage in, in, in chapter 3 is an expansion on chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He's concerned about our speech. And here in chapter 3, he expands upon that danger that resides within our mouths. And in this passage in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, one of the better known passages of the New Testament, and so clear, it's almost like it doesn't need any explanation. 
We read it. We should understand it. It is very clear, and that's, what, that's the beauty of James. Admittedly, there are parts of the Bible that are difficult, you know, parts in Romans and, and, and parts in, in Zechariah, and, and we struggle, and we need somebody to help us understand them and explain them to us. But, boy, James, he just keeps it right here at the gut level, doesn't he, as we go through this letter. And he reminds us that the tongue is a fearful, destructive thing. It has great power. Why is the tongue so dangerous? In verses 1 through 5, it has great power. Each one of you have tremendous power residing within your mouth. And how we use it depends on whether that power is destructive or a blessing, whether it is beneficial or, or terrible. And so we come to verse 1, and there is a solemn warning there. And I told our prayer group this morning, I don't know if I can even get through verse 1. Here is the warning. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. That is sobering. If you have opportunity to teach God's Word in any venue, whether it's to your children at home or in a Bible study, remember this verse. There is a stricter judgment coming. Now, in the historical context, James was addressing Jewish believers that had been scattered in the diaspora of Acts 8.1. And so there were little groups of them gathered in these communities and probably in little house churches. And in that day and age, the tr tradition, and it came from the synagogue tradition, is that a male of a certain age could stand up and teach. It wasn't just the pastor doing it, but any male could stand up. And James is warning them, don't many of you do this because you incur a stricter judgment. And we need to be careful about that, a solemn warning. Because anybody can develop, and if they're articulate, if they're uh, very well-schooled, they can come up with an entertaining speech. It's done all the time in the secular world. But that is not preaching. That is not uh, coming face-to-face -face with the God of the Bible, because these are God's very words. And so technically, any preacher should be able to st stand up here or anywhere that he's preaching and say, Thus saith the Lord with great confidence. And so the power of speech and the judgment there is the, what we call the Bema judgment seat. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, where Christians' works in this life will be judged. Not your salvation, but your works. And some will be wood, hay, and stubble, which will be burned up, and others will be precious metals and, and jewels. And those works are prepared beforehand by God in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And so that is the judgment of verse 1. And there's a surprising reason that he gives in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his old body as well. Notice the plural. James is including himself in this. We all stumble. That is the surprising reason for this. Don't let many of you become teachers. And he's building the case that all of us stumble in our speech. And then he uses these simple illustrations, the horse and the bit and the ship and the rudder. And what he is showing us is that very small things control great power. You think of the horse, but a bit, he tells them there that it, you, then you can got, lead it around, it'll come to you. And the ship, even in the midst of a great storm, the rudder will guide the ship. And he's telling us the picture is very small things are, uh, are controlling the power of those two entities. And he moves from the lesser to the greater, the individual horse to a whole 
uh, community of a ship in that sense. And so he's talking not only about us as individuals, but the context in which we are, whether it's a local church body, a biological family, a community that, uh, you know, very small rudders can direct the course of that ship. And they're simple illustrations of power under control. You know, a tongue can change lives positively and negatively. Our words, uh, our, our own words and the words of others. And I think all of us can think back to when we were youth and think of the, some of the raw stuff that we were told and uh, what we were called. You know, the world is good at calling us different names. And so we need to remember that it is a powerful, destructive force that resides within our mouths. In verse 5, there's a sobering reminder. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. I was curious about what our tongues weigh, so I looked it up. And, uh, you know, you can Wikipedia anything, Google anything. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, a human tongue, a male's human tongue, is between two and three ounces. That's a very small percentage, especially of my body weight. You know, that's just a little, little bit, but yet is so powerful. Uh, by the way, just a footnote, the largest tongue in the world is the blue whale, and it weighs 5,400 pounds. It's as big as a large elephant. So there you go. You have the extremes. But I don't think that whale has to worry about the power of his tongue. Uh, whereas we do with this little two to three ounce organ in our mouths. And so there's power in what we have and what we use. We hold tremendous power in our tongues. There's a proverb which says, it's it's an Arabian proverb actually, you are the master of the unspoken word, but the spoken word is the master of you. You are the master of an unspoken word, but the spoken word is a master of you. We hold tremendous power in our mouths. And James goes on in verses 6 through 8, talking about the perverseness of our speech, the perversion of our speech. Look again at verse 6, or verse 5. He ends verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Of course, we here in the Northwest, you know, after a few smoky summers, we know that it doesn't take much to set on fire a whole forest around us. And that's the picture James is using is this small little thing, a one spark can set a conflagration across. And we have all seen families torn apart, churches torn apart, communities torn apart by a small spark of the wrong words. And it destroys everything. The tongue can destroy everything good. It's used in a perverse way. In verse 6, he goes on to tell us there and explain that and expand upon it. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. It's interesting that, that, that phrase, set on fire by hell. And the picture for the ancients, for these people that originally were the readers of James's letter, uh, their viewpoint of life was it was like a wheel and it was going around and around, and we were out on the wheel part of it. But in the hub was hell, and the hub was on fire, just like over friction on a, on a hub of a vehicle. And that fire was spreading, and if we weren't careful, it would reach out into all the edges of our life. And that's the picture there. And we all know that our tongue, our speech can do that. The tongue is a fire that can be fanned by either, either heaven or hell. That is the choice you and I have Why is it so easy to go to becoming critical rather than to becoming a blessing? I think it's the sin nature and our our physical being 
that we tend to go to the critical rather than the blessing. It's much easier, it seems like. I'll tell you, this week I have been hyper-aware of my speech, and it's because I've spent time in this passage. And just in my mind, I just recognize that I have an easier time to be critical of things, even minor stuff, rather than a blessing and positive about life itself. You know, there is a decision that it can be from heaven that we can speak heavenly words. And you think of Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church age, and there it tells us that there appeared on these people who were gathered together. This was a miraculous event. Tongues as a fire distributing themselves unrested on each one of these people, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting picture, metaphor of the use, the positive use of fire. Uh, you know, if we didn't have fire, we would we would have frozen to death a long time ago. But uh, here it's positive, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And later, when you think about Peter's speech, his, his sermon in Acts chapter 2, and Peter was known to goof up his words. He was a blunderer before. He spoke without thinking, and yet in that sermon, he brought many, over 3,000 came to Christ because of his willingness to allow God to use his tongue. In verses 7 and 8, we go on that uh, he uses some more illustration. In verse 7, he says, For every species of beasts, birds, and reptiles, and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Uh, I remember when I lived in Denver, our family, we would go up the Cheyenne Frontier Days and Rodeo. And they had a big western parade in the downtown Cheyenne. And I remember I was always fascinated. There was an old cowboy. He had shaps on and everything. But he was riding a bull buffalo. It was a tame bull buffalo, a big, big buffalo. And I was always amazed. had a saddle on it. And he would ride that down the street every year. He had that bull buffalo. And it was just a picture to me of this verse that we have been known to tame everything. You know, it seems like there are people who can do that. We can tame those things, are tamed by human beings. In verse 8, though, the warning is, is that we cannot tame the tongue. But no one can tame the tongue as a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And here's another picture of a poisonous snake, if you will, an asp. And the poison is in the tongue. And we know that it is poisonous, it is dangerous, it is powerful. And we can uh, destroy others with our tongue. Or some of us have been destroyed by others' speech. And so power, perversion of our speech. And then finally in verses 9 through 12, the pollution of our speech. Verses 9 and 10, the pollution of hypocrisy. Verse 9, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And so one moment we can be a blessing to people, and the next moment we're criticizing them, or we are ones who are criticizing the image of God in their lives. And in verse 10, he goes on, From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. You know, you think about it. That is one of the things in this whole world where we can bless and curse at the same time. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my own struggle with cursing, with swearing. Uh, When I was uh, was saved at age 28, uh, I was working in the woods, logger, heavy equipment operator, and before that, uh, I swore like a logger. Now, you know, we, we hear people say, well, he swears like a sailor. That's minor stuff. Loggers know how to swear. We have raised it to a level of an art form. Uh, but, in fact, now when I hear young people, like if I'm in a restaurant or something, you hear young people swearing, I think, nah, rookies. 
you know. They don't, they don't know. But after I became a believer, I noticed I was still swearing, you know. And it brought me to tears. I just, it would just break me down. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, and it seemed like I couldn't get rid of it. It was such a habit for me. And it was so much part of my speech patterns. And I wrestled and wrestled, and I prayed and prayed. And finally, one day, I realized I haven't sworn for, you know, quite a while, a few weeks, under what's going on. And what it was is God took that away from me. Because it wasn't something that I just wild, worked up my will and my flesh and flexed my, my arms and said, I'm going to quit this. No, God took it away from me. After Jesus Christ rescued me from eternal damnation, and uh, he, he showed me that this is not right. And he took it away from me, and I praise him for it. You know, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's always the bottom line in life. We always, you know, we, we are only able to look at externals of people's lives, and yet it's always the problem of the heart is the problem. That's the bottom line. And we can fake it for a while. You know, we can say the right things at the right time to give the right impression. And that's the problem here, and James knows it. We know how to be religious around religious people, but sooner or later the truth about our heart shows up on our lips. It always tickles me, by the way. This isn't a side about that. Uh, but when I'm with someone and they introduce me to some friends or if I'm in a group of guys especially and they're swearing, and then I get introduced, oh, he's pastor so-and-so. Oh, boy, the language clears right up. You know, it's like, whoa. And I usually tell them, hey, you don't have to answer to me, you know, uh, because they don't. And nothing surprises me and shocks me really anymore in that, in that realm. Uh, but the problem is the problem of the heart and the gushing forth of what's in there. You know, when we lose our temper or begin to criticize or complain, remember James earlier tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in that. Uh, we blame others for our problems, uh, or we say we make excuses. By the way, an excuse is just a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Uh, that's what excuses are. Uh, a problem always goes deeper than we say it does. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from an overflow of the heart. It eventually comes out. If we speak angry words, it must be because our hearts are full of anger. If we speak loving words, it must mean that our hearts are filled with love. And I'm talking consistently, not just one time. If we are deceivers, it must be because our heart is filled with deception. And you know what? No one is perfect. No one is perfect. He said, we all stumble, James told us. No one is perfect except for Jesus. Now think about our Savior. In fact, we're running up to Easter here, and we think back upon our Savior and his perfections. But think about Jesus Christ. When uh, Peter spoke about Jesus before his accusers at his trial, he said this in 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Not one wrong word in those 33 years of life on this earth. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything in sinning and he, what he said. He never lied or falsely accused and never spoke an untrue, unkind word. 
He's the only person in history who never had to apologize for anything he said. Isn't that incredible? When you think about it, when we are surrounded, especially in our current societal, cultural adversity. You know, we live under the curse of 24-7 news. And, uh, you know, what's coming out of Washington, you know, in fact, I saw somebody said that when politicians in Washington gets together, truth dies. And, uh, and it's, it's not just limited to one political party either. And also, just may I just caution you about social media? It is so easy to just click on, on, on the share button to share something somebody else has said or posted. And you need to be checking that out because we as believers are supposed to be peacemakers. That means that we are about making peace in this world, and that only comes through Christ. And we are to be truth tellers. And so if you share something, make sure that it is truthful and make sure it is a blessing and a, uh, a, something that builds others up because we don't want to contribute to the current just nastiness that goes across social media. Jesus and James challenge us to put our faith to work rather than working to prove our faith. And it's true that our behavior flows from our mindset. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So what's the answer to this? This is, you know, I don't know about you, but after studying this passage, I felt pretty beat up. And that's what James intended, that your Christian life should make a difference. Well, the answer is, is we need Jesus. He is the answer for the untamed tongue. We need Jesus. I know of no other answer to that question. We can train ourselves to speak better. You can go to Harvard and Oxford and Yale and take all sorts of classes on speech and how to speak well, and you can do that, and you'll wind up knowing how to speak, but you won't know what to speak in a controlled manner. We need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. This much is certain. You will never control your tongue by your own power. Try and you may try as you might. Self-effort will never master a tongue set on fire by hell. That is such a picture for me because I've seen it. I've probably been a part of it. A tongue set on fire by hell. Only heaven can replace the hell in our mouths. Only Jesus can replace the fire of hatred with the sweet aroma of grace in our lives. Only God can change us from the inside out. Perhaps the place to begin, especially if you are aware that your speech is not what you want it to be, is before you get out of bed in the morning, is pray over your body and give it to Jesus. You know, we, we often uh, talk about this, that you pray about your feet, that they would only go where Jesus wants you to go, and you go work your way right up to your, up, up, up to your mind. But pray for your tongue specifically. Lord, let my tongue belong to you. Perhaps you can say, Lord Jesus, I've been using my tongue for myself. I'm going to use it now for you. Here are my lips. Let them speak for you. Here is my mouth. Let my mouth speak the words that honor you. Lord, this tongue belongs to you. And it's that day-to-day sacrifice of self for God's glory. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Your tongue can come under God's control. 
Your tongue, which today may be set on by the fire of hell, may become the tongue under God's control. He can give you new lips, new tongue. He can put words in your mouth that are new and a blessing. He can baptize your speech. And we should yield our tongues to him, shall we not? Shall we not give him our lips? Shall we not give him our speech? It is time for all of us, because no one is innocent in this, to pray, Heavenly Father, here's my tongue, let it speak only for you. Let my words lift up and not tear down. I think of another epitaph. If we were to go to Thurmont, Maryland, to the cemetery there, there's one uh, on a tombstone there. It says, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. We don't want to be like that. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know where we're going. We know without a shadow of doubt, because God's Word declares it, that we have a future and a hope with Him. In 1874, Francis Ridley Havergal wrote a hymn called, Take My Life and Let It Be. We've sung it many times over the years. If you've been in a Christian for long, you know it well. And she shows us the true application of James chapter 3. Here's the third verse. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. And we think of the last verse of this great hymn where she writes, Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. May God help us to take what we have and to give it gladly to him because it's his anyway, that we may ever only be all for him in our speech, in our life how we live out, what we say we believe. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for James and for using him to write this letter. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is to look in the mirror and face some of the things in our own lives, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit and for your constant care and love and your grace and your mercy, we would be transformed because of this encounter with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.